Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Together PDX podcast. I'm your host, Elise Gallus, and today I have the recording from our November 2023 Gospel Gathering with Dr. Esau McCulley. I truly don't know if there's been one of these gatherings that generated more buzz than this one, at least since I've been here. You all were so excited to attend. We ended up packing out the room and having a waiting list. For those of you who were there in person, you know there was so much excitement in that room to hear Dr. McCulley. It was amazing. I'm so glad we were able to record it and share it here for you all to listen to. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, Esau McCulley is an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois and theologian in residence at Progressive Baptist Church, a historically black congregation in Chicago. He has written many books, including Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, which won numerous awards, including Christianity Today's Book of the Year. He is a contributing author for The New York Times, and his writings have also appeared in places such as The Atlantic, Washington Post, and Christianity Today. Dr. McCauley gave two talks for this gospel gathering in Portland. This part one episode is of his first talk titled, How to Tell a Story That Will Set Us Free, Finding God in the Midst of Racism, Poverty, and Family Trauma. Enjoy. It's something of a truism, or maybe even a cliche, to state that Jesus was a storyteller and a spinner of tales. We imagine kind of that enigmatic Jesus with the ready quip. You know, it's this, it's this Jesus who only ever tells stories, who never offends, and the causes for his crucifixion are lost upon us, right? Why would anybody kill such a nice guy <laughs> with his heart set on saying nothing more than sentimental things about love? You know, you see those movies with the, kind of the blonde, blue-eyed, distracted Jesus with an amazing beard, who carries kind of a lamb smelling of mint upon his European shoulders. Just telling stories, and they just kill him at the end. I don't know why they did it. And we rightly kind of push back on these idealistic portraits of Jesus. It's just nothing but a storyteller. But that leaves a question unanswered. What role, actually, does story and narrative play in the Christian imagination. My field is biblical studies, New Testament. And there is a tendency in the New Testament world to look down upon narrative. I don't know if they do this in church. We look down upon narrative in biblical studies because serious theology occurs in Paul's letters. We wrestle with questions like justification, sanctification, atonement, election, eschatology, right? Serious Christians read Romans, right? The Gospels our devotional literature, right? <laughs> and the Old Testament is just a background story. But, 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 if we take a quick look at the phenomenon of the Bible, 
we see that God seems stubbornly committed to narrative. Even the portions that we think of as law, this breaks, this blows my students' mind every time I ask them, like, what's in the law? And they say, well, it's just rules. Well, actually, the Torah contains extensive portions of narrative and a surprising amount of individual stories. Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph dominate the opening parts of the Bible. The scriptures then, which are meant to shape the imagination of believers, are actually largely poetry, song, and story. And I want to suggest that maybe God gives us so many stories because that is the defining human quest. The struggle to find the correct story. To answer this question, what kind of world do I inhabit? Who's in charge here? Are the events that happen to me one after another have any larger meaning than other than they're the latest thing that have happened in the topsy-turvy world? The central claim of the scriptures is that despite the multitude of experiences, traumas, and miracles, there's actually one grand story ordered by the storyteller who brings order and meaning to all of our lives. As strange as it may seem, in a world marked by war and conflict, tragedies global and intimately personal, we live in a story being told by God. But this God isn't just the grand puppet master moving the pieces around to fight away his, bo- his boredom. My daughter, who is seven, only loves me when her friends aren't around. <laughs> she plays outside for hours, or she plays the video game, and we tell her to turn it off. Then she comes to me and say, Dad, entertain me. This is your moment. <laughs> Do something funny, right? God wasn't simply bored, and he started this story to occupy himself when he had nothing else to do. He is not simply the originator of this story, but he has entered it. God is a character in this story. He appears and fits and starts to the patriarchs and matriarchs. He reveals himself in Exodus and creation, but most fully in the person of Jesus. The scriptures present Jesus as the climax of the human story. Christ in this today no more. The resolution doesn't just answer our questions with a syllogism, with a long sought after act of love to reward us all of our hopes. But Christ is a bloody, a triumphant champion. And that ought to tell us that the story or the journey into the Christian narrative is never a simple one. Our stories like history itself, is cruciform, patterned after the cross. That means that all of our stories, if we live long enough, will have their share of heartbreak and beauty. For the Christian, there is no laughter without a hint of melancholy. Sorry, this might be, um, forgive me if I'm being nerdy, but one of my favorite books, I know it's such a cliche, is The Lord of the Rings. I know, it's, forgive me. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I should do better, but it is. 
but one of the things that I that I like that the thing that doesn't actually appear in the movie is the long extended scene when the hobbits return to the Shire. And they won the great victory. And sometimes they recall those old memories. But Frodo's a little bit sad, right? Even though he's won this glorious victory, there are wounds, right? That just don't really heal correctly. And there's this sense that even in our joy, in our victory that we have in Jesus, all of us await a deep and final healing. So why then tell stories? Why would someone with a PhD in New Testament do something as silly as writing a memoir at the age of 44? I think we need individual Christian stories, just like we need argumentative Christian theologies, because narratives, like we just heard, are entry points into the wider account of what God is up to in the world. I was told when I was in seminary that preaching is truth through personality. And I think that was true. But I also want to suggest that preaching is truth through the lens of your life. I've heard it somewhere, and forgive me, I know this is a non-denominational Baptist area, so I'm going to say a word, hopefully it doesn't get me in trouble. Say the word saints, okay? Don't freak out, we're not going to pray to anybody but Jesus, okay? He's going to say the word saint. I don't know how y'all do it out here in Portland, but saints, you know, in the Catholic tradition and the Anglican tradition, they said that we need saints, that we remember them on our calendars because their lives are a living exegesis of the gospel, that their lives display through their holiness what God can do in the lives of individuals. Well, the problem is I'm no saint. <laughs> and so my story can't reveal that, this 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 innate sanctity. Instead, though, I want to suggest that all of our stories, and but my story in particular, can reveal God's pursuit of someone. And in particular, God's pursuit of a black family over the long and winding passage of time. So how far to the promised land? What is that story about? To be honest, um, I know it's a cute title, but it's not actually about the Exodus narrative or even heaven. <laughs> I wanted to call it the bottom of the fig tree, but they wouldn't let me do it. Okay. <laughs> but when I give the talk, I can call it what I want. Anyways, I have power now, publishers. Okay. Actually, one of the, the, the um, passages that was in my mind when I sat down to write was from Micah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read it for you. I think you will recognize it says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Anybody that's grown up from the King James Version knows it actually to say they will study war no more. So you know that. You was raised right. Okay, good. <laughs> One of y'all was here. Okay. Like, what's the King James? It's a long story. It's England, monarchy. It's a long story. Everyone, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty 
has spoken. At this moment in history, Israel was threatened with distress. And the prophet looks over the long scope of history and say, one day the trauma that you all experience will go away. All of the wars and the danger and the murder and the killing is going to end. No more battling of nation against nation, people against people. And they will put down their swords and turn them to things to plow the land. And everyone, everybody is going to sit under their own vine and fig tree. If anyone knows anything about the long history of black literature, that language of vine and fig tree becomes a motif that runs through black literature. As a matter of fact, when Amanda Gorman gave her poem at the inauguration of, of, of Joe Biden, she actually mentioned the vine and the fig tree. It was this idea that one day black people in America will feel safe. No more anti-black racism. And so for me, my story is a journey uh, about a black family trying to find a place called home. It begins in 2017. I was living in Rochester at the time. And if I can be a little bit nerdy for any of you who care about any of this, um, the events of this book actually happened while I was writing Reading While Black. So in 2017, I'm working on Reading While Black, and my father dies. And he wasn't a part of our family growing up. He struggled with addiction. If if they made it, he smoked it. <laughs> and he was in and out of our family, and I didn't know him very well. He was a truck driver at the time, and he was coming back from California back down to Alabama, and we don't know what happened, but the single car accident, the truck rears off the overpass and goes to the one below, and he dies immediately in Bakersfield, California. And it quickly became clear that my family wanted me to give the eulogy, which would be difficult because I didn't know him very well. And I actually did what a lot of pastors do when they have to give eulogies to people who are strangers. They sit down with their friends and their family, and they say, tell me about this person who died. And one of the things that a eulogy is, is an attempt to tell a story, the story of a person's life. But because you're a pastor, you actually can fail to tell the truth. You can't turn them into a saint. That's not how, that's not how it works here. I, well, I don't know what y'all do it in Portland. In Alabama, we tell the truth. Right? But we're also attempt to tell that story in the context of the wider purposes of God. What does this person's life show us about what God is up to in the world? And when I sat down to talk with my family, I realized that the question of his life cannot be separated from the question of what God was up to in my own life. And then as I sat down and talked to aunts and uncles and the elderly people in my family who knew him, I began to learn about my family history, about generations that I'd never known about. And I realized something, that if you're poor and you're black and you're Southern, all of American history is kind of dumped into your lap. What I mean by that is that 
if you are poor and black and in the South and Jim Crow happens, you know what happens? You're directly impacted by Jim Crow. When you begin to study things about the tenant farmers and cotton picking and economic exploitation, that's happening to my family. When you talk about the war on drugs and the crack epidemic and the, and the stereotypes about the welfare queens, queens, that happens to my family. And so it began as a story of my father expanded out into the story of my family over the generations to reveal something about what America was doing to black people over the course of a 100 years. How far to the promised land, then, is a story about a people whose journey towards God deals with three interlapping realities. Family trauma, poverty, and anti-black racism. I'm going to talk about those three things in turn. Is that okay? Um, I'll start with the first one, family trauma. Here... I'm a little bit comforted by the Joseph story. In rereading Joseph after doing my father's eulogy, I recognized something. That Joseph's entire life, his entire life, was shaped by the portrayal of those closest to him. His family, his brothers. One of the things that's actually interesting, if you go back and you read the Joseph narrative with, through the lens of family trauma, is how little we actually see Joseph wrestling with this reality in his narrative. He actually doesn't speak about it very often. He only really speaks about it like once in the early part of his narrative. You know the story when Joseph finds himself in prison and he's hanging out with the cupbearer. And he's given the prophecy of the cupbearer, and he said, don't, don't forget about me when the time comes. Don't forget about your people. Right? And he describes his story this way. It's like a bolt of lightning. He says the following. Listen to what he says. I was, this is Genesis chapter 40, verse 15. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. The interesting thing that he doesn't mention is his family. He couldn't even bring himself to tell the people. The people who did this to me were my own brothers. So Joseph, who is now cast off into poverty and danger and jail and relentless trauma over and over and over again, all of that happens because of his family. And I think if we were to take time here and to go around the room, we could say Joseph isn't the only person who had that experience. There's some of you here whose significant portions of your life were marked by the betrayal of the people whose job it was to love you. And so Joseph had to figure out the question of God in the midst of family betrayal. And that's his story. And one of the questions you might want to ask yourself is why did Joseph stay a Christian? Well, not a Christian. He's a Jew at the time, but we, we, we look, Jewish. All right. How did he stay faithful to God? And Genesis 20, 39, 21 speaks about it, but it actually recurs as a motif running throughout Genesis. 
the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. One of the things that they ask um, me, especially if you read about the abuse that I experienced um, as a child, dealing with the father who was an addict, who'd come home um, sometimes a totally different person when he was under the influence of drugs. How did I manage to stay a Christian in the midst of so much suffering? And I sometimes I say this, and it may and it may seem like it's being flippant, but um, I wasn't. But I'm not trying to be flippant. I say to people all of the time, God was there when y'all weren't there. In other words, you go to college. This is, this is true. If you if you manage to, 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 if you're poor and you stay alive and you get to college, you go to college and they give you these wonderful things called books, and you open the books. And you read about all of these secular philosophies, humanism, and all of these things. And, they, and, and you read them, and, and, and they tell you how what you thought was God was only your own coping mechanism. And I said, that's really useful now. But when I was actually an eight or nine-year-old kid, afraid of my father, and I was on my knees in my bedroom and I was praying, there was someone who was there with me. And so what I say to them, and this is not being too arrogant, God was there before the intellectual critiques and secular humanism showed up. God was there before there were the Christians who told me that if I cared too much about the suffering peoples of the world, I was going to become woke and lose my faith. God was there before all of y'all. So I'm going to listen to him and not y'all. And to be honest, and be honest, this reality The question of the existence of God in the midst of suffering is a central question in the black church. And there's a testimony that deserves to be paid attention to. It is the collected testimony of the black church itself that says we made it through because God was with us when nobody else was. I remember when I was in Scotland once, I was there for three years, but there's one event there. And it was at this conference. And I don't remember the details. I'm pretty sure it's on somebody's internet. They were debating the existence of God. And there were these two, and it's really good. Like, you should listen to Scottish people argue. It's an amazing experience. <laughs> two Scottish, actually one was Scottish, one was British. Two accents flying back and forth with each other. I was enjoying myself. Anyways, at one point, they turned to the question of the problem of evil. And I don't remember who brought it up. But one of them brought up um, the suffering of people in Africa. I don't know if it was AIDS, malaria, it was something, right? And I don't know if it was the atheist or the Christian who brought it up first. And one guy was saying that this suffering proved that God didn't exist. And the other guy was saying that the suffering meant, you know, that God did exist. And they were fighting back and forth. And I looked around. I don't know if you've ever been to Scotland. There's not a lot of black people there. <laughs> and I was the only chocolate body in the room. And I was so tempted to stand up and say, do the black people get a vote? And one of the things that I've noticed is that everybody thinks they have the right to articulate the meaning of the black experience in America except for black people. And we've decided, collectively, we had a meeting about it last Tuesday, I'm sorry, when I fly, I get silly. I've been, I've been in I, it was a four-hour flight. <laughs> four-hour flight. <laughs> we decided that God is real. 
And so my journey towards God in the midst of family trauma, the simple reason that I can say I survived that trauma is because God was with me when nobody else was. And when I made it to a place in life where my resources could lie to me and convince me that I didn't need him, he was gracious enough to reveal to me the falsehood that, that was. And my journey towards God didn't simply involve family trauma. As a matter of fact, that's a relatively easy story to tell. Difficult in the articulation, but it's at least easy for us to tell. And it that story, in some sense, transcends particular cultures. We all can understand what it means like Joseph to be betrayed by those who love us. My journey towards God also involves overcoming or experiencing anti-black racism. And one of the things that I found really interesting is I've kind of traveled around the country, especially when I began to talk to largely white audiences, is how people respond to different parts of the narrative. And there's amen during the family part, and then the racism part, everybody holds on to their seat a little bit tight. They're like, what is this brother going to say? And there's this idea that, that I should leave, well, not just I, that black people should leave all of this racism stuff in the past. Why do we keep bringing up all of this old stuff? Why can't we just leave it alone and head into the future? But if my journey towards God involves making sense of God's love for me in the context of an often anti-black culture, if I eliminate that story, I'm eliminating the central part of my testimony. Imagine you have someone who had cancer and God was with them during cancer. And they survived. You, say, you know what? Don't talk about all of that sickness. That's just disappointing. Let's get to the healing part. No, no, no. The chemo is a part of the testimony. What I noticed is there are certain stories that African-American Christians are allowed to tell. And there are certain stories that we're asked to put aside as a requirement of entry into the wider Christian community. It is at bottom a refusal of empathy. If you deny the thing from which God rescues me, you're in effect denying God's power to heal and you're eliminating my testimony. My grandfather, I told you these stories span generations. My grandfather um, was a tenant farmer. He's told me that he start picking cotton. He's still alive. He's 80 something. He's old. I love my grandpa. So I'm going to take, can I say about him for a second? I get to the story. I'm thinking about him because I miss him. <laughs> he still preaches. He's, I think he's 82 years, 82nd birthday a couple of months ago. And I remember, and you shouldn't do this, y'all. So like, don't be like my grandfather in this regard. Be like him and everything else. But we, we, it was during COVID. And it was the lockdown, and he was a traveling evangelist. I said, Granddad, stop traveling, because you're going to get COVID and die. He said, I'm 80. Everybody I know is dead. What do I care? So he, just, he preached right through COVID. He just danced past the graveyard. Because <laughs> he was like, what do I got to lose? Anyways, my grandfather was four years old, and he was picking cotton with all of his sisters and his brothers. And there were seven of them. And he, he was living with his grandfather at the time, 
Willie Bone, my grandfather is Theodore Bone. And, and my grandfather Theodore would say that they split the proceeds 60-40. The white tenant farmer got, um, the white landowner got 60, the black family got 40%. From that 40%, they had to pay for all of the supplies and all of the materials necessary to farm the land. And my grandfather says no matter how good the crop was, at the end of the year, he will be told they just broke even. And they, 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 the schools were segregated and they would take they would take the black families out of school, the black kids out of school, to pick the cotton. And so my grandfather would got further and further and further behind in school. So by the time he got to ninth grade, he was already 16 years old, 17 years old. And he said, I knew that I was going to be 20-something before I graduated high school. So to drop out, join the military. My grandfather then was undereducated, not because he wasn't intelligent, not because he didn't have the ability, but because the laws and the customs of the South mandated his quitting his job to survive. I think a lot about the Miller family. I never met him. But I think about a kid who is the same age as my grandfather, right, who was in the white family's house. My grandfather was picking cotton, and those kids were eating off that food. And they went to school every day. He was behind in school. And I got to college, and I learned a little bit about how, how money and education works. And, and, and they said, you know, the biggest predictor of educational attainment is the educational attainment of your parents. You're most likely to go to college if your parents went to college. I said, well, then what are the implications of the fact that my mother educated or grew up with parents who were undereducated because of Jim Crow. I remember when I sat down with my grandfather and I asked him about Brown versus Board of Education. He was still young at the time. And I remember when I read about it in the history books. And in the history books, there's this picture that I saw everywhere. I think maybe you've seen it. Where there's the girl sitting with her mom on the steps of the Capitol, I think it is. And it has the, the court bird. You all see this picture? And I was like, oh, this must have been like what it was like. And so I said to my granddad, how was it when Brown Brown's Board of Education passed? He said, I didn't know about it. We didn't have a radio or a newspaper. And so my grandfather, despite Brown's Board of Education, never entered integrated schools. My mother entered her first integrated school in the first grade. But imagine what it was like if the school didn't want this young black girl in the classroom. How was she treated? How was she educated? Mom tells me about wanting to get in this honor society. She worked hard because she knew that getting into the honor society was crucial to her getting to college one day. And no matter how good her application was, they wouldn't let her in. Mom goes to one of the white girls and goes, what's the problem? Why can't I get into this society? Talk to the administrators. She was just told it's not a good fit. And it was made clear to her that her black body was not wanted 
in places of higher education. This is not generations ago. This was my mom graduated in 1979, the year that I was born. My grandfather, despite preaching through COVID, still walks the earth. <laughs> I remember um, before they had George Floyd, they had this person, and some of you people remember this. It's the Rodney King story. Now, this is going to be hard for you young people to understand this. Before they had phones, they had these things called video cameras. <laughs> Think of it as a really big phone that you can't call people and no internet access. And it had a tape. Think of it as like a hard drive. You just put the hard drive in. <laughs> they don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like one of those. But everybody just had one at their house. Why? We don't know. We just had them. Just to videotape the world. <laughs> but one day, this man happened to have one of those cameras outside of his house. Pointed, well, he managed to record an attack on a black man. This becomes common now. It feels like we all can pull out our cameras. But the chance of you being able to pull out one of those things at time was relatively unlikely. And it was our first real videotaped evidence of this reality that we had talked about for so long. It's so weird when you see history repeat itself. Like George Floyd and, and Rodney King are so similar and how those narratives impacted America. We said things were going to change, and they didn't. But I remember my mom sat me down after the George Floyd, not the, the, the Rodney King incident. The interesting thing is I have to do that with my kids years later. Sat me down and gave me the talk about how to survive as a black man in the South in a car. And she didn't teach me about the law, what was and wasn't correct. She taught me how to survive. I won't, I won't tell too much. Can I keep going for a little bit? I got time. Okay, I'll keep going. I remember, um, one time I was driving back from where I was, I was living in Huntsville, Alabama, up to where I went to school at the University of the South. In Swanee, Tennessee, it's about an hour and 10 minutes from my hometown to where my university was. But it was in rural, between rural Alabama and rural Tennessee, where there was, there was nothing there. My mom used to always tell me to like go home on time, but I didn't listen to her because I was hard headed. I was watching the football game, stayed to the end, <laughs> and then we started driving up through rural Alabama and Tennessee in the middle of the night, me and a friend of mine from college. And a car pulls up behind us police car and my friend said you see me I saw it so y'all not gonna get me I'm 10 and 2 I'm driving the speed limit and I know there's a speed trap in the town because I've driven this road a thousand times so I slowed down because the speed trap was coming that's when the lights came on and I forget this because it's such a vivid moment the cop pulls me over and as my mama told me you say yes sir what did we do sir and he said to me you had a sudden change in speed that's when I knew we was in trouble. I said, well, sir, there's a um, speed trap up there. That's the reason why I slowed down. And he asked for my license and my registration. And then he asked for the license of the kid who was next to me in the car, which is not legal, but we were not in any paces to negotiate. He asked where we were going. 
we said that we were going up to the university. It's about 45 minutes away. He said he didn't believe us. He asked us to pull out our student IDs. So we showed him our college IDs, and he went over to the um, car. He was there for a few minutes, then he came back, and he handed us both of our licenses and our IDs. And he said, you boys, you were grown men at the time, you boys get on up to the mountains, what it was called, and don't you stop again between here and there. And when he said, boy, I felt a certain kind of way. But I knew that if I accepted his invitation to a confrontation, I didn't know how it was going to end. And I tell these stories with my grandfather, my mother, and myself to show you about the long tail of racism that followed us generation after generation after generation. And the question that I was asking myself at the time as I carried this black body around the South is, does God care about what is happening to us now? And I concluded, that's the reason why it's important to tell these stories. I concluded that he did because the God that I read about in the Bible would have declared those actions and the way that we were treated repugnant to him. But it was more than that. It was more than that. This is important to me. This is important to me. I don't care if you care about it or not. But the question that I couldn't help but think about is that, yeah, yeah, it's true. God saw the things that are happening to us. And, and he was more bothered by that than I was because it was denying the image of God and the people that he created. But I also concluded that God was good, not simply because he gave me the tools with which to critique society, but that God also had a word for me. That it wasn't just an external critique, that those folks were messed up. He revealed to me how in different ways I was broken. And the gospel is big enough to encompass both social critique and internal healing and include the possibility of community. And I couldn't find anything else on earth that could do all three of those things at the same time. And so in How Far to the Promised Land, I don't talk about racism to vent is to explain the world into which God comes to redeem and save. Now, I want to say a word on beauty, and then I'll sit down. There's a difficulty um, that comes to telling a story like this, because it can treat black life in America as an unending barrage of suffering. The tears are easy to articulate, but the harder thing to explain is the beauty. My neighborhood was hard. A lot of poverty, a lot of violence, a lot of racism, a lot of broken families. But you never had Thanksgiving in my grandmother's house. Red velvet cake, lemon meringue pie, and all of that 
So y'all, y'all, y'all not ready for this. I'm from the Chitlins culture. Listen, I, I graduated, but I'm not going to front like I, I, I was gone long enough to realize what I was doing. <laughs> but at the time, it was delicious. Anyways, they say I'm uppity now. So I am. I am. I'm sorry, Grandma. I changed. You're right. You're right. <laughs> but I can say it was good. If you put mustard and hot sauce on, it was delicious. But I can't do it anymore. Anyways. Some things the books do change. Anyways, I'll leave it alone. Leave it alone. What people who are outside of our community, who only hear about our community in the times of trauma, do not understand the joy that can arise even in the midst of dark and difficult and complicated times. I wish that you could not just come and hear a gospel choir as a special service but experience what it means to be ministered to week after week after week after week and to see the entire spectrum of the black community in one place, from the person who worked at the convenience store to the doctor, all in one community. And when my father wasn't around, you know who would come to see me play sports games? The deacons in the church. That I would look up into the, into the stands on Friday nights and see my surrogate family. I remember... The the most fun I ever had playing basketball was actually with a group of drug dealers. <laughs> we were young, I don't know, elementary, middle school, and they kind of pulled up to the park where we used to have. We used to have those chain nets. I don't know if y'all had these chains in Portland. But you those chain nets, anytime you hit it, sound like money. <laughs> and every year we get new chain nets. The city would come, and they would only last for a few months. Folks are still, I don't know what they did with them because I never saw them anyway. But he just took the chain nets. But anyway, the chain nets would be up there for those first few months of summer before they took them away. Somebody would come and steal them. We had them. We had our new chain nets and we just giving them that work. And these, these older kids come down and we didn't know what they was up to. Sometimes Trey was in bad mood, sometimes in a good mood. This day was in a good mood and they brought a cooler out to go, this back in the nineties. Pagers can't explain it. Google it. Put up pagers, took the jewelry off, put it down to the side put the weapons down, <laughs> and they started playing basketball. And at first, they were destroying us because they were grown men and we were children. But I don't know if you've ever been to Alabama, but it gets hot during the summer. And they started drinking out of the cooler. And as the sun kept increasing and the beer kept decreasing, they got into a bit of a struggle. We were young and we had nothing but energy. So we start, we were running around and they stumbling all over the court and we beat the big kids. I never forget. It was so much fun. Cause like you, you beat the big kids. And I remember thinking about how happy I was and remembering the truth is that sometimes it was the drug dealers in the community who would tell you not to become like them. They said, no, no, you, you seem like you have a good head on your shoulders. You don't come around here. You go get into them books. Well, sometimes they see you and they say, hey, man, here's a $20 bill. You just go and take care of yourself. But those same people were the people who sold the drugs that ripped our communities apart. And that taught me something. That people can be more than one thing. That people can be capable of profound evil, but genuine acts of goodness. And if people are more than one thing, if they're struggling to find themselves, maybe if you give them enough time, God will emerge victorious in the end. Patience then, I think, with broken and difficult people 
and manifestations of trusting God. One of the things I've never understood by Christians who never grew up in those kinds of communities is how we talk about the poor. What I mean by that is if someone gets killed by the police or someone dies, what they do is they do a retrospective of their life. They say, look, this person had all of these cases pending against them. They've been in and out of jail. So we know that everything in the future is going to be like the past. So we need to show no empathy over this dead person. And I say the whole point of Christianity is the plot twist. That you don't see the change before it comes. That, you know, nobody would have been looking at the thief on the cross. You know what, this thief, he's a prime candidate for a last minute conversion. (laughs) Right? But the whole point is the gospel could jump up and grab you at any moment. Anybody who has seen the tax collector before he walked to the temple that day and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner, would have judged his previous life and said, this brother is nothing but a loser. I've always thought this might be odd. Maybe it's odd. I think then that the deaths of the people who are damaged are more tragic than the people who had their lives. Because I know what I, they, they found themselves. To me, the damaged people are deserving of the most protection. Because I know if you had paused my life when I was 16 or 17 years old, you would have written a different future for me than the one that I actually lived. What I want to say then is that those communities in which we like to toss people aside and write them off as lost and not worthy of our compassion is precisely the world into which God came to heal me. And even when we're not paying attention to it, God is at work in those communities. So when people tell me they know what someone's going to become, I always ask them, are you in the place of God? For a long time, um, I always thought that my father hated me. When you're a kid, you don't really understand how addiction works. And so I thought he was coming and going and coming and going and coming and going because he was playing some kind of like strange game. But one of the things that happened is you get older and you learn about what addiction actually does to personalities, what it does to people. And I realized as an adult that my father returning over and over again was not actually an act of intentional cruelty. He was attempting to make a turn. He was trying. And I want to say, as strange as it may seem, that attempt, that attempt is beautiful in its own way, even if it fails. There is God there in the attempt of broken people to be better. Right. My father has a heart attack about five years before he dies. And even though they've been telling him this his whole life, that heart attack finally scares him. And he begins to make some attempts to make amends. 
And my mom tells me, this is true, that the day that he died, really about 30 minutes before he died, he called her on the phone, which he had begun to do more and more in the last years of his life. And he tried to apologize to her um, for the things that he had done. And he said to my mom, baby, I'm going to win you back. Mama said, I ain't thinking about you. <laughs> uh, I'm going into a movie. She was going to move with her, with, with her, um, her sister. And he said, um, all I can do is pray. Her mom hangs up the phone and he died a half an hour later. He was attempting to come back home, but he ran out of road. But I think there is something of God in that. And that we think that the only stories that are instructive are the stories that end with these neat, happy endings. We end up in the suburbs in these well-manicured lawns. But I think there is a beauty in every human life that is attempting to make sense of God, even if the story doesn't end in the way that we like it. And I think that I found God in my father's story, in the context of preparing his eulogy and learning about his narrative. And even though most of my family doesn't end up in the promised land, we had time, I mean, I recount more of it in the book, what actually happened to all of the ancestors who I recounted along the way, a lot of them don't make it into this utopia that we consider the suburb, just crushing its own way. But I found struggle, I found God in the struggles of my ancestors to, to live a life with dignity over the generations. And by finding God in my father's story and in my ancestor's story, I found God in my own story. And in that finding, I was welcomed into the grand story, which is marked by beauty emerging out of places of death. Because I was taught in the black church that empty tombs still speak volumes. Thank you. Wasn't that so good? I hope you all were in a place where you could sit and pause and take notes because I know I needed to. A couple things I wrote down. Part of the healing is in telling the story. So good. And then I wrote, God was there before the intellectual critiques of secular humanism. So I'm going to listen to him and not you. Such good lines. So many others. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. Dr. McCulley gave another talk that we have in the next episode. That one's going to be called, How Are We as the Church Trying to Shape Christian Imagination? So go listen now in part two, wherever you're listening to this episode.